You are listening to the Amodamar podcast. In this series, Amoda explores her essential teaching through conversation and excerpts from interviews and events. To find out more about events and to sign up for her newsletter, go to www.amodamar.com. Please subscribe, comment and share if this podcast moves you. And if you feel called to donate, please go to the website. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Um, So to begin today's session, we will start with a question. Um, The title of your most recent book is called Embodied Enlightenment. Could you please expand upon what embodied enlightenment is? Thank you for your question, Sadie. Uh, There's a myth, there's a common myth of enlightenment that it's a a transcendent state um, that elevates us above the world and with that comes an image that we are immune to the human experience, that we no longer feel pain, that we have reached a state of supreme wisdom and supreme knowing and um, supreme seeing and these are qualities of the mind and it's been um, this this viewpoint this myth of enlightenment as a as a destination that we get to that's it's it comes after much spiritual practice and if we're lucky and if we're graced by the guru and if we find the right teacher and if we've meditated enough and so it's a very elevated state and this this myth of enlightenment it's been perpetuated by spiritual traditions um, and handed down through various lineages as a kind of almost patriarchal model and it's also been uh, it's very common in the spirit, in the modern day spiritual seeker to have this idea of what enlightenment might look like and how to get there and why it takes so long and why I must strive so hard to get there. And once I get there, I'm going to be a super being. <laughs> um, and sometimes this myth or this imagery is not so conscious, but it's, it drives the spiritual search. And I know this because I've spoken with hundreds, I've spoken with hundreds, if not thousands of spiritual seekers over the years. And it's just so common, but it's not often seen. And, and the, and the result is, is spiritual bypassing, which has now become a very, you know, a pretty common term, at least in, in spiritual circles, that spiritual bypassing means we're we're actually out of touch with our humanity. We might have had um, a profound awakening, uh, a, a profound recognition of the true nature of our beingness, the true nature of self. And this is clear seeing, and it is a kind of supreme knowing, but it's a mental realization. And once that mental realization um if it, if it stays as just a mental realization, and it can very easily do so because even after awakening, 
the ego remains, even though um, the ego may dissolve in the awakening experience, inevitably it has to reform itself in order for us to operate as human beings in the world. Hopefully, <laughs> it doesn't reform itself with the same defense structures that it originally had. When I say defense structures, I mean the um, conditioned reactivity um, of, the, of the habitual mind, the egoic mind. Hopefully, that has been demolished. But a, a, a looser, lighter ego does reform, uh, reform itself what I call the I rather than the me. It has to, otherwise there'd be no I here to sense the world, perceive the world or experience the world. And obviously we do continue to experience the world after awakening or after enlightenment. So when that ego reforms, very often it it reforms, hopefully lighter, hopefully looser, hopefully more open, but very often there's still a vestige of ego that remains that takes ownership of that awakened experience. When it takes ownership of that experience, that's when the individual in which that happens is prone to spiritual bypassing because then the enlightened state, which is a mental realization, I don't mean an intellectual realization, it's deeper than that, but it remains in the mind, mind becomes illuminated. When the ego grasps onto that, it's a subtle, it's a subtle veneer of spiritual arrogance, which then means that spiritual bypassing, in other words, not Truly being in touch with the depth of our feelings is a really strong possibility. It's very common. And that's, that's an avoidance of the heartbreak of the human experience. So when I speak of embodied enlightenment, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to the, 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 the possibility and the necessity for that illuminated mind, the, 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 the realization, the recognition of true nature in illuminated mind to then descend or fall into the crucible of the heart. And that's, that starts the embodiment process. It's got nothing to do really with the body as such, enjoying the body and expanding the senses and all of that juicy stuff. It's really about, although it can include that, but it's really about the lived experience of that truth. And that lived experience really can only happen when the heart is penetrated by that awakened consciousness. And it can only penetrate the heart when we then go to the next um, level or layer of that process, which is a surrender, a deepening surrender to the very human feelings of that are that are part of our experience as we meet the world and as we 
meet relationship, and I mean all relationships, the relationship to each other, the relationship to the world, the relationship to everything that we do, the relationship to the collective, the relationship to humanity, the relationship to the planet. All relationships are really met through the crucible of the heart. And when there's a defense structure there, which is... I am enlightened and therefore above these raw feelings of heartbreak and loss and whatever else we might feel in response to to the human experience, then that awakened consciousness can't penetrate all the way. And it needs to penetrate all the way so that it falls from the heart right down into our belly and, I, and these are metaphors, yeah, that's not literal, but the belly of being. And in the belly of beingness, it has a chance to dissolve all division between me and the world. In other words, the world isn't outside of me. The world is in me, is in me as consciousness. And from that place... Um, we can relate to the world in a different way, not from a super elevated place, but from a, a place of deep surrender, humility, and grace. And, and, and so the embodiment of enlightenment has deep ramifications for how we relate to each other. I probably could say a lot more, but let's, <laughs> that's a starting place. Thank That's you. a starting place. It's, um, yeah. Okay. And so this, this is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, so some, to kind of, it, it sounds like this is really about meeting life in a sense of um, being as open as we are able to in each moment. Is that kind of what you're edging on? And um, I know that you have an upcoming book uh, called Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. And is this, does this kind of, this embodied enlightenment kind of lead into this, um, this falling open in a world falling apart? Yes. I, um, uh, yeah, increasingly I, I speak about openness. This, this full embodiment of awakening or enlightenment is an openness, an openness that isn't to do with um, our boundaries. Yeah, but very often this gets confused with, uh, well, if I'm open all the time, doesn't that mean I get hurt or abused and so on? I'm not talking about personal boundaries. Of course, we need healthy boundaries on a psychological level on a human level yeah that's just part of the negotiation of the human experience but the falling open is the falling open into beingness when we when we come to rest or fall into beingness not just during our meditation practice but as a lived experience it feels like a falling open it feels like a falling open and and i use that really as a as a metaphor because what's actually falling 
is the acquisitive grip of the mind, the mind that wants to come to a conclusion about everything. In other words, the narratives are, are falling. And when we come to a conclusion about our experience, about reality, we're metaphorically operating as the clenched fist. Yeah, it's like the clenched fist of ego has a self-righteousness in it. So it comes to a conclusion about reality. This is my experience and I'm absolutely sure that this is how it is or this is how I feel or this is how I see things. Yeah. And then inevitably it will flip to its opposite. So the egoic world, which is the world of division, is constantly moving between, it's like a pendulum. Yeah. And, and that pendulum is not only internal, but it's also in our relationships. That's why we have, there are battles <laughs> in intimate relationship. That's why there are battles between nations, um, between different cultures and different opinions and so on. When we fall open, it's such a surrender of the acquisitive mind, the narrative mind, the self-righteous mind. And this isn't something that we need to wait for until we're enlightened, although that may happen and that that's kickstarts the process, but something that we can be willing to see in ourselves in every, in every moment, in every relationship. Um, and, and if we have the courage and the willingness to see how the clenched fist of the egoic mind creates our own prison because it creates an enemy out of reality, out of its experience, then there might be a possibility for a surrender. It's a surrender that comes from the depth of our beingness, from our, from our deepest longing to know what peace is, to know what love is, to know what freedom is in our lived experience. And then we start to fall open. And although it feels scary, it's, it's the greatest um, sanctuary there is. It's our only true sanctuary. It's like a sanctuary and an immunity. And then we can meet life as that openness. And when we meet life as that openness, which is our essential nature, it's not something other than what we are. It's just covered over with all the narratives and the habitual tendencies then we can meet life as openness and everything changes. Everything changes, whether there's chaos or whether there's um, uh, calamity or whether there's uncertainty. When it's met from openness, really that's the end of fear. Mm -hmm. Because in openness, there's no separation betre between you and what is. Because what is what is being experienced, it's all experienced in you as consciousness. It's not outside of you. It's not an inter independent happening 
or thing outside of you. That's a, that's a perception of the myopic ego that believes itself to be a me here in, in this encapsulation and that there's a world out there and things in that world and those things happen and sometimes those things are bad and then I feel bad or sometimes those things are good and then I feel good. This is the end of that, that veil of division and, and that's radically transformative because if everything's happening in me as me, then it it can't be divided into good or bad. It can be felt and something, you know, some 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 of what I feel is it might be painful or it might be difficult, but it's not divided by the, the mind. It's all it's all a texture, a texture of life that's happening in me, as me, through me. It's the end of fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a question arising. Would you say that trust is something that leads to openness or are they sort of synonymous? That's a good question, and I, I do get asked that a lot, and it's it's a tricky answer. So I'm I'm going to try and surf this carefully because my 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 immediate answer or my deepest response, and, and it, it's a radical response, is that trust is not needed. Um, Trust is usually created by the mind, the mind that wants to know that it's going to land in a safe place. If I open, I need to land in a safe place. And then that means, what is, what is safety? Safety then usually means I'm comfortable. This me that I know myself as, is going to be comfortable, is going to be secure, is going to be taken care of somehow. I hope you see where I'm leading with this. As soon as we start to have that need or expectation that I'm going to be taken care of, I'm going to be safe, I'm going to be comfortable, Um, and so on, we've already created an imaginary safety net. What we're really doing is we're begging or bargaining with life, and it could be with God, or it could be with some kind of universal power, uh, universal consciousness. Yeah, we're, We're bargaining with something that we think has more power than me, and will take care of me if I open. This bargaining doesn't work. It's a, it's a strategy of the mind. So the, the true answer is no, trust is not needed. Mm. But the 
trust that is available as we perhaps choose, or we we don't choose it, we, we, we just have to be willing to open or to meet life as openness. The trust that is available is comes through the openness itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing that we really can trust but openness itself because openness is always here. It's always here. If we, and for those people who, who might have had an, a, a true awakening, uh, an, a, an experience or a glimpse into non-dual awareness the part of that realization is that everything that appears everything that i sense everything that i experience everything that i see everything that i feel is all happening in openness in a space that space we might call consciousness where else would it be happening? Yeah, when we when we really look, yeah, when we really look, where is everything happening? Where is this hand moving happening? Where is everything that I'm perceiving now happening? It's actually not happening out there. It's happening in consciousness. The I that I am, that is conscious, that is consciousness itself. Everything is perceived and experienced in that. And that consciousness is openness. It's space. It's spaciousness. So that's the only trust, true trust there is. We come to trust that. We don't have to have trust in it, but we come to trust it as it reveals itself more and more. It's the one constant Everything else comes and goes. Everything comes and goes. Our feelings come and go. Uh, Our experience comes and goes. Uh, Things that seem to happen in the world come and go. Our life comes and goes. Everything comes and goes, except for this space within which it comes and goes. That's the only thing we can trust. And when we can really trust that because it reveals itself more and more, that's the end of fear. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, You speak of in in your book, Embodied Enlightenment, about self-love and this being the most intimate I, I'm not, I don't have the exact words that you use, but the most intimate relationship that we can have is with this self-love. I would love to hear you speak about that more if you'd like to. Can you remember, Sadie, in context, in, the, in which context that was spoken um, of? It was, um, it was near the end of Embodied Enlightenment, and it was speaking of the concept of self-love and so often how, um, you know, people attach self-love to meaning doing things to pamper ourselves or um, to treat ourselves to something and that there's something much deeper that we have the opportunity to open to. 
Mm, yes, thank you for that. Um, because that 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 phrase self love does does imply on on a surface level it does imply the being kind to myself and taking care of myself and um, maybe pampering myself and so on. And, and all of this is good. Of course, we have to take care of ourselves. Of course, we have to tend to the, to the mind-body vehicle with kindness, of course. But it's not the same as a, uh, perhaps if I do speak of self-love, um, it's not the same as uh, what I would call a self-cherishing love or a self-love that comes from the self-cherishing mind. In other words, again, the acquisitive mind that wants to do anything and believe by doing these things that I'm a good person, that I am loved, <clears throat> that I am special, that I am worthy, because very often when it comes from the mind that wants to um, create an identity that I am special and I'm lovable and I'm loved and all of this, because actually there's a there's a there's a wound of unworthiness under that underneath that that hasn't been fully met then we're creating an identity that can easily be threatened. Yeah. I, I, I can feel worthy in, in this circumstance, in this relationship, I can feel loved and I can feel good enough and I can feel that self love, but then something else comes along or someone else comes along and I don't feel loved. I feel unworthy. So my identity has been threatened. So perhaps the, the, the self love that you're referring to is, um, is, is not to do with the self-cherishing mind. I, I, I would speak about it from the place of um, falling in love with our aloneness um, rather than falling in love with our personality self, <laughs> yeah. which is creating just layers of identity which... Um, as I was just speaking of, can, can get threatened depending on what happens to me. Um, falling in love with our aloneness is, is, is more about um, falling into the abyss of being that is the true self, not the self with the small s, but the self with the big s, yeah, who I really am, not who I really am as a personality. Yeah, that's, that's irrelevant. <laughs> but who I am in my amness, which is my beingness, in my depth. And that's very often a scary place for many people and even for many spiritual seekers because it's the end of propping oneself up with various identities, identities of I am good or I am worthy or I am lovable or I am special or I am 
I don't know, whatever I am, successful or I am, yeah, confident or I am, yeah, it's, it's the end of identity. And that's a scary place initially, but when, when realized or when fallen into or when surrendered to, it's, it's the birth of love. Yeah, the birth of love, not the birth of self-love, although it includes that. It's the birth of love. In other words, the, the, the recognition on a, on a deep, energetic, visceral sense that I am love. Yeah, I am love because there isn't anything else. If I am love, I don't need to love myself because I am that love. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that, again, changes the relationship to the self. It, it means that I don't have to pretend to be anything. I don't have to try to be anything. Uh, I don't have to fix anything about myself. I don't have to perfect myself. I don't have to strive for anything to make myself better or more perfect or improve myself. It's the end of concern, self-concern with the, with the personhood. Yeah? But it means that something is freed up. The unique uh, expression that this mind-body vehicle has incarnated us as the unique expression can flow freely into this life and this world. So there's a there's a freedom. It's like the it's like the personality, the outer layer has become very permeable and very transparent. And because it's permeable and transparent, the light, the light of that awakened consciousness comes through this unique um, pattern, this unique geometry, and it's free. Yeah, it's, it, Not only is there an internal sense of freedom, because I'm not concerned with myself, but there's a freedom in its expression, and there's a freedom in what can flow through this. Mm. Um, I was, what you were saying about this unique geometry and this consciousness flowing through this unique geometry, I was reading your article the other day about polishing the crystal of our uniqueness. I, a question arose for me while I was reading that, and it was, would you say that our uniqueness, it only truly is flowing once this awakened consciousness is allowed to flow through because so often there is this, I, you've written about it and spoken of it, this fear of, will I lose myself in this awakening? And there, and what you, what you are expressing is that there's a, a profound uniqueness that has the opportunity to flow. And I would just love to hear you speak on what, what that, what that is really. Yes. Um, yes, I, I, it, you know, it kind of links into um, the beginning of the conversation 
when we touched on the myth of enlightenment, again, that the myth of enlightenment, because it has so much um, history to it and lineage and tradition, um, both from religion and and other you know spiritual paths and and even modern day spiritual paths that when we awaken when we get when we when we are enlightened um that that we become this it's almost like the image is is a static one you know it's usually male um, um but it's it's kind of uh, aloof and detached and very calm and um so it, it kind of just gets blended out this image of enlightenment uh, you know we have the you know the, the male teacher sitting on a pedestal and that's why it feels so out of reach but yes what we're speaking about here and what I'm speaking about and certainly from my own experience we don't get blended out um in fact, in some ways, the opposite, to the contrary, we're, we're no longer um, an automaton, <laughs> to put it bluntly. You know, when we're, when we're subject to conditioning, to the, the, the reactions that we've learned, which are really defense structures from childhood to protect ourselves from, from being hurt, um, psychologically from to protect ourselves from feeling unloved when we've been trained to conform to parental rules to social rules to cultural rules um, and, and, and we haven't actually examined to gender rules and we haven't examined whether those identities that are formed in that are really true or whether they're a prison that's been created, um, then we're really acting on aut automatic. Yeah, there's no freedom in it. We think we're being free. We think we've got free will, but we're subject to the cause and effect of our conditioned responses. What is being spoken of here? In, 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 in awakening and the full embodiment of that awakening and the full living of that awakening, which is the same as enlightenment, is that those structures are demolished. They just come tumbling down. But that doesn't make us bland. That doesn't make us this perfect image of the enlightened being. It means that our uniqueness can shine through. So that uniqueness, it, the closest I can get to it in describing it is a geometry, it's a sacred geometry. We could say it's the moment that your soul incarnates um, or the moment that you're born. I'm not sure which and whether they're actually the same, um, but it's almost like the, the moment that consciousness comes into form and expresses itself as, as you in this world. It's a moment in time. And, and so a moment in time and a moment in space that, that has a particular blueprint. And that blueprint is like a, like a crystal. 
And each crystal is unique and it has different shapes and different, you know, some are sharp and some are more rounded and some are more, uh, some have more sides to them and some are more, you know, simple. Or, you know, there's lots of different, every crystal is unique. And when we're operating just from conditioning without any self-inquiry, then it's as if that crystal is covered over by by layers of dust. Um, those layers of dust are the, you know, cultural, historical, parental, societal, educational, you know, uh, conditions, conditioning that we've been subject to. As we start to awaken or go on a journey of true self-inquiry, that dust gets purified, it gets cleansed. And so that unique crystal can shine through more easily. We, we can be that crystal. So our uniqueness in that sense, which is not just to do with our behavior, I'm not talking on a behavioral level, because on a behavioral level, that's, that's subject to our our um, society and our culture to some degree. I'm talking about just the way that life moves through, through this vehicle. Yeah? Life moves and expresses itself through this vehicle in a very unique way. And so that, that comes through more freely without... Um, impediment it's it's not so you know it sort of stops being a question of what should I do what's the right thing to do what's my mission in the world what's my purpose how do I find my life's purpose it, it just happens yeah it's like a deep knowing not a knowing from the mind that says oh I know what my purpose is and I'm going to follow it now it's it's just a very natural flow that we have no control over it's like the floodgates are opened and it could be very you know for one individual it might be very still and very like a like a like a, a gently meandering river and for another individual it might be like a bubbling brook and it's very you know effervescent so it yeah, that's where the uniqueness comes in. <laughs> but we have no control over that. Um, okay, I have a question that's kind of arising through what you're, what you're describing. I'm wondering at the core of why we don't all experience our own uniqueness in every moment, is it simply a sense of unworthiness and layers and layers and layers of that? Or what would you say that it is that keeps us from in all moments feeling our own uniqueness fully expressing you know that uniqueness is always here it's like the openness it's always here but yes we don't we're not we're not 
aware of it. We're not in touch with it. We're not rooted in it. Yeah, because attention or, or awareness has been taken up by the narratives of the mind that may say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. Uh, I'm not perfect enough. I'm not special enough. All the narratives that get created by our conditioning. So when our attention is taken up by that, then we can't sense this innate and essential flow of life through us as we are, how we are. (laughs) You could say it's a kind of undercurrent of goodness that is always here, whatever is being done through us or not, you know, whatever is moving or whether it's in stillness, whether, yeah, whether there is stillness or whether there is movement, it's, it's always here, but we can't come to know that when the narratives of of the mind are where our attention is going, where our allegiance is going. In other words, we're believing those narratives. A thought comes or an experience, something happens in the world or in my life and I feel bad. I feel punished. I feel unlucky. I feel let down or the opposite. I might feel incredibly successful. I might feel very special. I might feel victorious. Whichever side of the pendulum it is, when our allegiance is given to that narrative, we've missed the deeper reality, which is a a, a spring, you know, a a well, (laughs) a deep pool of goodness that is always here and that goodness is always moving through us yeah we don't have to take ownership of it in fact we don't take ownership of it but it's always here and moving through us and in that sense that unique flow is is always um informing us it informs us it's like an intelligence an intelligence that's always informing us that we can't really listen to we can't can't really hear when the attention or the allegiance is given to the narratives yeah we we, we give the majority of people uh, yeah it's what we call the asleep state the unconscious state give their allegiance to the egoic mind the mind that has a narrative a narrative is always a conclusion a conclusion ends up as a divided state because it's subject to the vicissitudes of life. This happens, I feel this, I am this. This happens, I am that. And so it flips between 
the, the two sides of the pendulum. It's what I call flapping around on the surface of life. At some point <laughs> when that flapping around becomes exhausting and when there's a, a deep longing to break out of the prison of, of this this ego, yes, an egoic, egoic consciousness or an egoic unconsciousness, then something shifts. The, the attention starts to go within, yeah? So a deeper inquiry starts to happen. And that's, that's the path of awakening. That's the beginning of the spiritual journey, if you like. You know, and in the end, even though we call it a spiritual journey and even though we call it, you know, we, we talk about spiritual seekers, uh, I very often prefer not to even call it a spiritual journey. It's, um, it is, <laughs> but in the end, spiritual and human collapse into one. Yeah, it's, they're not separate things. <laughs> okay. I have one more question, and then there's a couple of questions sure. from the uh, in the audience. So the last question that's been coming up for me is something else that you mentioned in the book Embodied Enlightenment about the body being a gateway to liberation. I would love to hear what you have to say on that. One of the things that gets, um, again, it's a, it's a tricky conversation because we have to surf on the edge because nothing is ever one thing or another. Truth is paradoxical. So I could say that there is no body, yeah? there's only consciousness, and that is true. But the opposite is also true in that we have to really feel the body in order for that truth to be realized. So when I say that the body is a gateway, I'm really referring to, again, the tendency for spiritual bypassing, which is very common in especially non-dual spiritual circles where the body is denied because there is a very often a profound realization that consciousness is, is primary. It's, it comes prior to the experience of form, prior to the experience of this body, prior to the experience of the world. Um, and is the only constant because the body also comes and goes. <laughs> yeah. It's born and it dies or it, you know, it appears and it disappears. And um, the identification with the body and the clinging to the body as who I am is another part of that prison that keeps us flapping around on the surface so however to to say that I am not the body or to realize that I am not the body and then to proceed by denying the need to take care of the body is a great error <laughs> yeah that if the body, if I am not the body, then the body doesn't matter. So I don't have to look after it. It doesn't matter what I eat. Um, 
and 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 so on and so on and and there's a kind of um again that the the myth of spiritual ascetism that does not serve the full embodiment of awakening or enlightenment in this world in this modern day age yeah we we're, we're not we're not it's not relevant to 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 go and hide in the cave for a thousand years and not take care of the body um and go into a deep state of meditation that's not what's being called for it's being called we're being called to be in the world but not of the world and that means to 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 be to be in the world and not of the world means that we are not identified with the body the body is not who i am who i am is consciousness that's the foundation it's the foundation of waking up out of the dream of form that's primary and without that there can't be any real transformation of consciousness but once that's been realized recognized the there's a there's a kind of return to the world of form where the world of form is embraced as an expression of that consciousness and then whatever needs to be taken care of in terms of the world of form which includes my body is included that means that we feel <laughs> spiritual bypassing comes to an end we're no longer denying or avoiding the human experience that is felt yeah you know, the body feels we don't feel in any other way we feel through the senses it's a felt sense even if it's not directly on the body we when we feel it's an energetic felt sense so that's what i mean by the body being a gateway <laughs> yeah it's like being in the body but not of the body <laughs> i can't hear you sadie sorry there we go okay <laughs> yeah i can hear um Oh, thank you. Uh, so we have just around 20 minutes left. And so I will just take a couple of questions from the comment section. Um, there's a great question here. So Brett is saying, this is so good, but how do I implement it? That's a very good question, Brett. And um, I don't know if there's a straightforward answer. My whole teaching is about... <laughs> is about that <laughs> um you implement it if you like you see it's it's not a it's not a it's not a formula yeah you can't say well do this do this do this and you're going to get to this it's an inquiry it's an investigation it's an invitation to listen to what is deeper more true than the narratives of the mind that's something that you probably will need to be 
invited into <clears throat> through a conversation, through spiritual inquiry, let's not call it spiritual, but through inquiry over and over again. That's what I offer. That's what I teach. That's, that's why I speak in public. That's why I have gatherings. That's why I have conversations with individuals so that in, in listening to you, I can hear to what is happening, to what is going on, where you're give, giving your allegiance, and I can reflect back to you ha- what's, what's actually happening and, the, and then invite you to go deeper than that. So that's really what I'm, what I'm saying here. Now, you have the power, should you choose it, should you want it, should you desire it, to go on that journey of inquiry yourself. It helps to have another, a teacher or whatever you want to call them, a friend, (laughs) to reflect it back to you, to keep the invitation alive, because without that, it's like the flame goes back to sleep. But If that flame is very strong in you, if your deepest desire, your deepest longing is to know that which is more true than narratives of the mind, than egoic mind, to come home to your true nature as beingness, as openness, as presence, without it being a practice, because there is no practice, then you will, and I'm going to use the word practice, practice in your daily life. Because every moment offers you that opportunity. Every moment, every moment when you're speaking with your friend, when you're speaking to your family, when you're speaking to your lover, when you're speaking to your dog, when you're relating with your work, when you're sitting at your computer, when you're eating your food, you're really in relationship to your own narratives. Everything that you experience is experienced through the narrative of your mind. If you start to notice that, you, my invitation is then, if you notice those narratives, if you notice, you may notice the narratives or you may notice the feelings that you're experiencing. You feel uncomfortable or you feel um, angry or you feel sad or you feel this or you feel that. Yeah. My invitation would be, can you, first of all, turn your attention, you know, not give your allegiance to the narratives, but be willing, yeah, to give your allegiance to what is more true. That means you feel what you're feeling. But when you feel what you're feeling, the tendency is to to interpret that feeling. And when I say interpret... I mean, the tendency is to interpret that feeling by saying it's good or it's bad. I don't want to feel this. I want to feel something else. I want to get rid of this feeling. It's not good. It means I'm bad. It means I'm whatever it means. Yeah, I need to fix myself. That's interpreting the feeling. So then you interfere with that feeling. In other words, you try to fix it, you try to push it away, you try to suppress it, you try to replace it with another feeling. Interference and interpretation prevent you from knowing the truth and meeting of, to, of prevent you from knowing the truth of your experience and meeting reality as it is. 
in a nutshell, that's it. That's the invitation for you to go on that journey of inquiry as a lived experience. Okay, thank you so much. All right. Second question here is from Cheryl. Uh, she says, behaviors of the body and mind can be helpful for this world. How do we know if a behavior is of the soul or of the mind? Thank you for that question. When a behavior in other words, an action that you take in the world. And I, 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 I'm hearing in that that there's certain actions that are good in the world, kind actions, compassionate actions, generous actions, whatever, yeah, helping what needs to be helped and so on, uh, supporting a situation or whatever. Um, when that action or behavior is driven by, and this is where we have to be very honest with ourselves, if I do this, it means I'm a good person. If I do this, it means I'm a loving person. If I do this, it means I'm a spiritual person. If there's an agenda for your action, and we have to be very honest because it gets very subtle, if there's an agenda for your for your action, if there's a, a need to or expectation to get something back, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to be approved of, to be loved back, then it's not really a pure action, a selfless action. That's uh a possible discernment, yeah, that's, yeah, a discernment between an action that comes from the mind, which always has an agenda for the outcome because it's trying to uphold an identity of me, yeah, or a pure action which has no self in it. It's almost instinctive. It's natural. It just happens. There's no self in it to self-congratulate in any way and there's no self in it to expect anything in return beautiful thank you so much i think we probably have time for um, a third question um, this is also a question from cheryl let me just get the exact wording here it was, my mind fights me like a child. How do we tame the childish mind? Cheryl, I'm going to bounce back a question. Um, when you say your mind fights you like a child, Demanding, yeah? Or is it doing something? Attention or reward? Okay. I'm not sure if she's going to write back right away. Okay. 
Well, let me try and answer that from that point of view, because that's what I'm hearing in that, that the mind is like a child, a child that demands attention, that demands uh, some kind of reward, some kind of comfort. Yeah. If you see the mind as an enemy, then you will enter the battle zone. Yeah. So even though we're talking or I've spoken or pointed to the mind, the acquisitive mind, the ego mind being a prison and, and so on and not being your true self, I also... I'm not, you know, I also invite you not to do battle with your mind because entering the battle zone simply perpetuates that inner war. When your mind is seemingly having a tantrum <laughs> or demanding attention or so on, the best approach is to be tender. Tender being tender does not mean that you pander to the mind's demands. Being tender means that there's a gentleness in you. You're not entering the battle zone. You're not fighting back. You're not trying to suppress the mind. You're not um, um, punishing the mind. You're not trying to tell it it's wrong uh, or to control it because all that's happening in that is that the mind you're using the same mechanism to get rid of the thing that you know you're using the, the the same mind to fight the mind that you're trying to get rid of it's just a, a war in your mind it's not yourself your true self that is having the battle with the mind it's the mind having a battle with the mind. That's what I call the divided mind. Gentleness, tenderness is no, no fight, no war. You simply just soften the whole mechanism in you. Yeah, it's a surrender of mind. You may experience yourself falling falling open because when mind doesn't fight mind there's nothing there's nothing to grip onto something falls open you fall into beingness in beingness there is no mind not there, there is no divided mind there is no mind fighting with mind so see if you can find gentleness in you thank you Sadie it's, yeah thank you for having invited me and being part of the unify network beautiful really beautiful thank you hey thank you so much